morning. Good morning again. Yeah, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can, as always, the sermon text is printed in your bulletin. Last three weeks, three months, <laughs> three months, we've been going through this letter to the Hebrews, Jewish Christians in the first century. We think the letter to the Hebrews was originally, in its original form, get this, a sermon. Quite the sermon. <laughs> they don't make them like that these days, do they? <laughs> you know, 6,200 words in English. If you were to read it out loud in a normal speaking voice, it would take you about 50 to 60 minutes. And I mean, wow, what a dense sermon. It has more Old Testament quotations than any other book in the New Testament. Very highly theologically complex ideas that are going on and, and being woven throughout the, the sermon. What struck me is that the audience, I mean, who would be the audience for a sermon like this? A very smart audience. I mean, these were highly intelligent people. We think of maybe the first century folk as primitive in, in some way. People who lived 2,000 years ago, maybe kind of on the caveman-esque side of things. But, I mean, I, I, obviously that's not true. These were extremely intelligent people who were able to follow densely packed arguments woven together. A great deal of Hebrews focuses on how much Jesus Christ has done for us. How Christ is our empathetic high priest. How God has showered us in Christ with his kindness in buckets and droves. How Christ promises a new country, a new rest, a Sabbath rest, an eternal inheritance. How Christ is better, how Christ is better than everything. But what we've We've said many times, and we come back to it today, uh, you must persevere to the end. The central theme in this sermon, if I, if I were to summarize the sermon in, in one talking point, the, the, the central theme, the repeated theme, is the absolute necessity of persevering faith. You cannot turn back, he says. You cannot, you cannot go back to Judaism, as some of you are thinking of doing. You've got to pursue Christ all the way to the end of the race. We are people who um, don't like to be threatened. We don't like it when people uh, warn us, but particularly we don't like it when anybody kind of gets up in our face and starts to threaten us. But one of the ways this preacher in his long sermon has tried to convince his hearers of the truth is he's had these three very serious, sometimes you call them warning sections, but really they are threatening sections. The most serious threats in the New Testament can, found, can be found in one of two places, either in the, uh, from the mouth of Jesus, because Jesus is very threatening, or here in this sermon to the Hebrews and particularly verse 26, arguably the most fearsome threat in all of the Bible. Look there with me at verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. What is this teaching? If we deliberately keep on... Is he saying that if I, if I intentionally and repeatedly continue to look at that that I'm not supposed to look at or 
think about that or do that or say that, then um, there's no sacrifice of sins left for you. You know, there's no hope. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. The deliberate sin that's being spoken of here is the same sin which we've had repeated and warned throughout the book, and that is it's the sin of apostasy. It's the sin of throwing in the towel and turning your back on Jesus. For such a sin, he says, only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God is what is to be expected. This image of uh, fire and vengeance, is this the image of hell? Is he talking about what's going to happen to people at the end of human history uh, with hell? Um, Well, maybe, but remember when this sermon was written. This was written around 66 AD. In 60, I think it's 68 AD, Emperor Nero dies. In 67 AD, the Jewish revolt against the Romans uh, starts up in 67, and it lasts for three years. And at the very beginning of the Jewish revolt against the Romans, it looked as though the Jews had a chance at winning. It, it looked as though they might be able to prevail. I mean, the Roman Empire at that time was, um, it was, it was worried about the northern frontier. The barbarians in the north might might come and encroach into the northern areas of the empire. It was dealing with a, an internal civil war at that time. So they were, they were distracted by all of these things. And just maybe, maybe, just maybe, this revolt might work. It's, that's how it seemed. Well, it didn't, of course. It, it was brutally crushed. The Roman general Titus takes the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And as Jesus Christ prophesied in the Olivet Discourse, no two stones in that entire city were left standing on top of each other afterward. He burned everything, and he raised everything to the ground. I think about it. No two stones were left on top of. That's utter and absolute desolation and destruction. With that in mind, re-listen to verse 28. Here's what I think he's saying in his sermon. If we deliberately keep on sinning, how? By returning to the Levitical sacrifices, which are being offered in Jerusalem. Talked a lot about that. Um, If we keep turning back to the Levitical sacrifices, you you have to get in a boat and travel to Jerusalem. Um, After we have received the knowledge of the truth that Christ died once for all and put an end to all the sacrifices... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins back in Jerusalem, where you are thinking of going to, but only a fearful expectation of catapults, Roman armies, forests of crucified Jews, and fiery indignation which will consume the enemies of God, just as Jesus tragically prophesied would happen. So, yeah, he could be referring to hell, but I think the fire and the judgment here in uh, 26, is literal fire and judgment that, that fell upon the Jews and, and the city. Verse 28. You have been warned. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the, the Torah, for some of its crimes, it, the, the punishment was, it was capital punishment, Well, if that were the case, how much more then, verse 29, how much more severely 
Do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God under their foot, who has treated as an unholy thing the precious blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has, the rhetorical question goes on, and who has insulted the Spirit, the spirit of grace? Listen to the image that this preacher uses to describe apostasy. It is, it is the, one of the most disturbing images in all of the scripture. He says, he says, imagine that the cross on Calvary was laid flat on the ground with Jesus still nailed to it and still alive. And there, there he is laying prostrate, bloody, broken, suffering, loving, and he says, and one of you who think you're going to go back to Judaism, you step forward to the edge of the cross, and there on Jesus' face, you stomp. He says that that's what, to commit apostasy is to trample upon the Son of God, to despise and treat with scorn the precious blood of the Savior, which has been poured out for you. That's a a really heavy picture, isn't it? And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Obviously, these are very intelligent people. I bet if you were to ask them, if you were to ask them their reasons, why they were going to leave Christianity, they certainly wouldn't have thought of it in those terms, would they? They could have, They could have told you all of their reasons in such a a, a persuasive and, um, I mean, they they would think about going back to Judaism as a way to kind of return their lives to the peace and quiet that they enjoyed before they ever became Christians. It was a way to, to create harmony in their extended family because they've got Jewish family members who can't even believe, why in the world did you become a Christian in the first place? And that going back to Judaism would secure the future of their children because there's increasing economic marginalization. If you're going to be a Christian in the Roman Empire for the next 30 years, good luck trying to survive. They would have had, they would have all these excellent self-justifying reasons for doing what they did. My, oh, my, does God see things differently than we do? All of our excuses, all of our, our reasons and, and justifications that seem so right in our own eyes, God says he will cut through it on the last day. And, and anyone who, who tramples upon his son and treats as unholy the blood that was, was poured out for them. God is, you know, we, we make our appeal based on extenuating circumstances and personal hardships. But on the day of judgment, God is not going to take any of those seriously. I tell you this, not because I'm trying to be negative or mean. But because this is how God's word speaks. Verse 30, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to, the fall, to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he took part of that sermon from that line right there. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, now don't make the mistake of um, believing that God's a rageaholic. 
don't make the mistake of having this distorted view of God as though he's just naturally wrathful and he just loves squashing us like spiders over a, a flame as is the image that Edwards uses in that sermon. That's, that's not true. No, we forget that his wrath is not a permanent part of his nature. Have you ever thought about it? His wrath is not a permanent part of his nature. It's something that is provoked and aroused by human evil. The reason I included that long section in Romans chapter 1 in our reading earlier today is that is the indictment that God has upon all of humanity. All of us are guilty to some extent or another in all of that evil. And that's why he says before he gives the long list, he says the wrath of God is being revealed in heaven against all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men on earth. It's it's not because he's a cranky rageaholic. It's because God hates evil, be it kings or nations or Israel or even Christians. Verse 32. These people had suffered since they had become Christians. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, after you believed the gospel, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Remember those days. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, even, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now, isn't that a way to put it? So do not, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what God has promised. For as the prophet Habakkuk says, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one, my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But brothers and sisters, he says, I, I believe better things are in store for you. Verse 39, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we belong to those who have faith and are saved. This ends the reading of God's word. Amen. It's an important passage for American Christians to, to receive. Um, not my favorite type of passage to preach at, at all. Um, but we, we rarely hear warnings or threats this blunt, either in churches or in our, our small groups, do we? I mean, we're, stead, we're, we're fed a steady diet of the mercy of God and the patience of God and the love of God and the promises of God. We, we rarely hear something this, this frightening. Um, so, I, you know, one of the things we try to do at All Saints, we try to preach the whole Bible we try not to skip over the hard parts of the Bible, but, it, but include those. And um, that's why I decided when I was going to preach through the book of Hebrews, I would preach all three warning passages. Because we just don't, we do not hear these things very frequently now, do we? But having said that, at the same time, I don't want, to walk, want us to walk away unnecessarily shaken. I, I want us to have the same confidence in Christ and our salvation. As we articulated earlier today in Heidelberg Catechism number one, we started the whole service out by saying that I know that I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Not even a hair on my head 
can fall out without, without him being in charge of that. We, we need to have that kind of confidence. And so here's the question. What is the basis of our confidence that we will be people who persevere in faith to the end? What is the base of our confidence that we will persevere in faith to the end? And it, it, it's several fold. Three things I'm going to talk about. First, the cross. The first basis of our confidence is the cross. Our branch of the church, Reformed theology, has always maintained that what Christ did on the cross and in the resurrection 2,000 years ago is inextricably linked to our individual experience of salvation today. This was the primary argument for the so-called doctrine of limited atonement. Who's heard of limited atonement before? That's a terrible title for any doctrine. <laughs> I mean, after all, who wants to limit the atonement? Of, who wants to limit the cross? You know, heaven forbid that we, let's never use that, that uh, rubric again. Instead, you know, you can come up with a better one. What I, what I would say is instead of limited atonement, we believe in definite salvation. The Lord's death on the cross secures everything that is, that is necessary for our salvation, including the faith that we will later need and have to put our trust in Jesus Christ. So if I could explain it this way, here we have Jane Christian. Did Jesus Christ die for Jane 2,000 years ago and then, then say, boy, oh, I really hope that Jane just hope one day she'll come to believe in me. I hope one day that she'll realize that I'm the Messiah who died for her sins. I just made salvation a possibility for her now, and I, I just hope she makes, makes good on the opportunity that's afforded to her. Reformed theology says, no, that's not what Jesus said. No, Jesus does it all. He not only dies for her sins, but he subsequently sends his Holy Spirit to her as a gift. And with the Spirit comes the, the uh, included gifts of repentance and faith. He brings with him also the gifts of repentance and faith. So salvation, in, at least in Reformed theology, we always maintain it's very Trinitarian. The Father chooses a people to be his own. The Son dies for that people and secures their salvation. The Holy Spirit is sent to those people with subsequent saving faith. And if it's saving faith, then it ain't going to fizzle out. It's going to be a faith that perseveres to the end. This is how we get the wonderful, unbreakable chain of salvation that is recorded for us in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called, in, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be his. And, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Notice the tense of that last word. Paul is so confident that the predestined, called, justified people of God will actually make it through to the end and be glorified in the resurrection. He's so confident that he puts glorified in the past tense. He, he's so certain. It's like, it's done. Take it to the bank. 
In the Second World War, after the attack on Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December, 1941, Winston Churchill, apparently, pulled out his journal, his diary, that night. And he wrote these words into his... This is the night of Pearl Harbor. He, He wrote, Ah, so we won. So we won after all. What? There were still over three and a half years of war to go. There were still literally tens of millions of people who were going to die. But he knew that we had won, that with America's manpower, technology, and resources in the war, the war would now be won. Uh, We've won. And so it is, brothers and sisters, we've won. When Christ triumphed on the cross, it was not a possible maybe salvation if if uh, Jane decides one day to decide for Jesus, it is a definite salvation. The cross guarantees the, the supply of saving faith. That's good news. <laughs> Very good news. That's the first point. Second point, better keep moving. The second basis of our confidence that we will be the people who persevere to the end is, is simply Jesus is a good shepherd. We'll sing about that later in the service. We'll sing Psalm 23 during the passing of the bread. Jesus is the good shepherd. Listen to the wonderful words out of John 10, verses 26 and following. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me, my Father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I am my Father. We are one. Now somebody might say, well, yeah, but we still have free will, don't we? <laughs> so, you know, free will, we could, we could still leave Jesus, couldn't we? John 10, yeah, maybe John 10 teaches that nobody else can take us away from Jesus, But if you really rebel, if you really run away, you know, you can still lose your salvation. I don't want to get into a complex discussion on free will this morning. But look, if a shepherd comes home with 97 sheep and his supervisor says, hey, I gave you 100 sheep, you only brought back 97. And the shepherd says, hey, 97 is an A. I only lost three. What do you mean you've only lost three? It's your job to protect the sheep. The shepherd says, I did protect the sheep. I protected them from robbers. I protected them from wolves. I protected them from bears. Then then why did you only come home with 97? He says, three wandered off. Can't blame me. You cannot blame me for the stupidity of three ship, sheep, ship, three sheep who go off on their own. What is the supervisor going to say that? He's going to say, of course I can blame you for that. That's the whole reason we have a shepherd. It's for the stupid sheep. I mean, truly, if, if, if you can take yourself out of the sheepfold, then the whole good shepherd motif just crashes. If, if the only way he's able to hold on to you is if you can't get away from him, truly, no. That, if Christ is your shepherd, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Not even yourself. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. If you have truly, really been converted, really tasted the grace of God, no matter how many 
down times you have or how many wandering times you go through, you will always come back. You will always persevere because he is always a good shepherd. I love how John Calvin puts it. He says, he says that our salvation is, is certain because it is in the hand of God. Our faith is weak and we are prone to waver, but God who has taken us under his protection is sufficiently powerful to scatter with a breath all of the power of the adversaries. He goes on, no demon in hell will ever be able to say that God's hand was too weak. Amen? No foe on earth will ever be able to say that he could not keep them. Nobody who has ever lived and who ever been part, truly part of Jesus' fold will ever be able to say that we have snatched one of those sheep out of the pierced hand of the Redeemer. Not a chance. Then thirdly and finally, the third and final basis of our confidence that we will be the people who persevere in faith to the end. It's the motto. That's what I'm calling it. The motto from Habakkuk. The, the quotation from the prophet Habakkuk found in verses 36 through 38 at the end of the chapter. Just a little background on Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived around 600 B.C., right before the Babylonian army was going to sweep through all of Israel and destroy everything again and take the people off out of their land and off into exile. Habakkuk's preaching ministry turned out to be pretty different than most of the prophets. Maybe the prophets you think of prophesying judgment, taking people to task for their sins, or prophesying some big future kind of cataclysmic event. Habakkuk really didn't do any of that. His preaching ministry consisted of him basically telling people to wait on God and to keep praising God no matter how bad things become. In the very middle of Habakkuk chapter 3, here's what he says. He says, he says, look at the proud. The proud, their spirit is not right in them. They think they can manage this coming catastrophe all by themselves, but the righteous one shall live by faith. There's the motto. For those who cling on to the God of Israel, even when Israel as a nation seems to be drowning before the, before the seas of armies in front of them, my righteous one shall live by faith. That's the motto. That's the motto that Paul makes famous later on in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. What Habakkuk meant was that when everything all around seems to be turning upside down and inside out, God's true people will hold on to him by faith and they will finish the course. Again, the, this endurance in faith is, is not because, it, it's not because of our own strength, <laughs> of course, uh, and it's not because that we will somehow go on to, to have this perfectly victorious Christian life. No, even if we're given the Holy Spirit, we're going to fall into sin, even serious sin. We're going to backslide and become complacent. Our faith will be at sometimes exceptionally weak and almost non-existent, but we keep coming back. God will keep leading us back to this motto of the righteous one will live by faith, no matter the circumstances. Verse 33, see what they had had to suffer Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, verse 33. Verse 34, you suffered along with those in prison. 
You had you accepted the confiscation of your property. Apparently, uh, the Roman authorities were allowing the non-Christians, the Romans, to plunder the the property of, of some of these Jews without any police protection. These Jewish Christians without any police protection. But, verse 34, but you accepted the confiscation of your property with joy because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Though we still live in an evil present age, just like Israel and Habakkuk's time, there is coming a new age in which God will give his people lasting possessions Chapter 12 says, an unshakable kingdom. How's that? (laughs) Where we will be, as he says right here, richly rewarded. The next chapter, the famous chapter 11, the the chapter of the the faith chapter. It's probably the greatest chapter in all the Bible on faith because we see how the Old Testament saints, how they persevered uh, by faith. And they look forward to the new world that God would make in which they would obtain the true inheritance how they realize the motto, the righteous will live by faith. And it happens to be a faith which, which God supplies. Well, let me conclude with two quotations. First is from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God. For I tell you this, The one who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. But the one who will not confess me before men, I will not confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever finds their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In 2 Timothy 2.11 If you die with me, you will also live with me. If you endure, you will also reign with me. If you deny me, I will also deny you. If you are of little faith, if you are of little faith, I will remain faithful, for I cannot deny myself. Brothers and sisters, repeat these basic essentials over and over to each other this motto, these truths. For we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not those. We are those who have faith and will persevere to the end. Amen.